Please be seated. Good morning, church family. It's so good to see all of y'all here this morning. Uh, if you haven't been with us over the last uh, couple months, we are finishing up a series that we're calling The Questions of Jesus. Uh, we're looking at how Jesus asked these provocative questions to ordinary people like you and me, and he was really doing so to open up like a key, opening up new places in our lives that we might know more of him, more of ourselves, more about the whole meaning of life. Um, and so the last few weeks in this series, we're going to be looking at some of these post-Easter, post-resurrection appearances of Jesus and see that he continues to ask questions. He continues to ask questions of his people, um, even after he raises, rises from the dead. So um, if you'll turn in your Bibles to one of my favorite stories, Luke 24, um, that's where we're going to be this morning, the, the, the famous story about his appearance to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I do, I do want to say one thing um, in reference to my sermon last week. So last week I preached about, uh, talked about Mary Magdalene, do y'all remember? Um, it was Easter, I, I remember that. Um, and uh, I talked to some, and a couple of people, about three people reached out to me this week, really challenging me on what I said about Mary Magdalene. So what they challenged me on was that Mary Magdalene, they said, there really isn't any evidence that she was the woman in Luke 7, that she had any past if prostitution. Um, there's not real any evidence at all that links her with that text. It's really what I have discovered, even something that the medieval church even made up in order to really tarnish her name because they were so uncomfortable with the idea that Jesus would appoint and send a woman uh, as sort of the first apostle and witness of the gospel. So I really looked into that this week, and I discovered they were right. There isn't any real biblical evidence of that. So I just want to say I'm sorry for saying that because I really want to work hard to be as diligent as possible from what I say from the pulpit. And when I say something that isn't true, I really want to own that. Um, so I'm sorry about that. Do you all accept my apology? Thank you. Just want to get that off my chest. Okay, so Luke 24, let's pray as we go to God's Word. Our Father, uh, we thank you for the Word of God, that it is powerful and active. Thank you that the Spirit is present here with us. And we pray that now that we would not only read about Jesus, but that we would encounter him, see him, know him, experience him, even now. We pray this in his name. Amen. Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. Now that same day... Two of the disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. Jesus asked them, here's his first question, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Here's question two. What things, he asked. <laughs> About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And even more, it's the third day since all this took place and some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning. They didn't find his body. They told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. <sighs> and Jesus said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? 
And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, please stay with us. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. I'm sure that some of you have heard about this, what is a now famous social experiment that the Washington Post conducted in which back in 2011, I think it was, they had a young man go into a busy metro station in Washington, D.C. And they, he, was, he played the violin and they had him take out his violin. He put his case down, opened it up, threw some money in there, sort of a seed money. And he began to play. He played for 45 minutes during rush hour. So when everyone was going you know, to work, all the government workers, and he played for 45 minutes. Um, during that 45 minutes, probably almost 1,100 people walked by. Um, during that time, about seven people, I think, stopped to listen to him play. 27 people gave him some change. He collected over the 45 minutes $32. And when he finished, he just picked up his violin, packed it up, walked away. Nobody applauded. Nobody noticed. It was over. The reason why this was a remarkable social experiment is because the young man was a guy named Joshua Bell, who is probably the foremost violinist in the world, one of the most world-class musicians. During that 45 minutes, he played probably five or six of the most intricate, impossible pieces ever written for the violin. He played on a Stradivarius instrument that was made in 1710 that was worth about $3.7 million. Um, he played that thing for 45 minutes. Just two nights before, he had sold out uh, a Boston concert hall at tickets that cost you know, a couple hundred dollars a piece. And yet, for that 45 minutes, on a cold January morning, 45 minutes, a thousand people walked by, not a single person saw him. They did not have the eyes to see him. Their eyes were blind to the glory that was right in front of them. Uh, this, this is a story, one of my most famous stories about Jesus. Uh, this is a story about our blindness and about our inability to see, not just a world-class musician, but to see the risen and reigning king. That so many times, what we're doing is we're being invited by the questions of Jesus, we're being invited into this story to consider in what ways are you blind from seeing the risen and reigning Jesus? We are Easter people. We are in Easter tide. Easter is Easter tide is a 50-day party in which we are celebrating as the people of God that Jesus did not just raise once, but that he is now risen. He is reigning. He is at work. He is among us, beside us, within us, around us, behind us, before us, at work in China, in Egypt, in Richmond, in the United States, all over the world, but yet we do not often see him. Our eyes are blind to his powerful resurrected life. And this story is inviting you to consider in what ways are you blind? Are you not seeing the risen Jesus? And how might your eyes be opened to see him? The key to life, friends, 
is to see what is already true, to see what is right in front of you and to live according to it. So let's just look at this, this story by, by looking at those two themes, blindness and sight. Not seeing Jesus, what keeps us from seeing him? And then seeing him, what can open our eyes to see him before us, okay? Are y'all, are y'all with me? Y'all seem a little sleepy today. Um, I'm just gonna trust that, that y'all are, or you're gonna listen, okay? So, so let's first talk about blindness. What, what are some of the things that, that keep us blind to Jesus? I think the first thing that we see that's pretty obvious in this text is, is unbelief, that these guys, these disciples, we don't know if it's a man or a woman or two men, or, well, we know one of them is a man because it's Cleopas, but that these two people had been told by the women that Jesus was alive, but they just did not believe it. They thought they were crazy, cuckoo. You know, they didn't think it was possible that Jesus could be risen from the dead. And so their unbelief actually blinded them and prevented them from seeing the risen Jesus right in front of them. He could not possibly be alive. It's an illustration of this. I told this story a few years ago. I've got to tell it again because it's such a great illustration of this. But about 10 years ago, I traveled with one of my best friends. His name is Ramesh. I traveled with him over to London because he always wanted to see a Liverpool game. So we went to see a game over there. And one of our other best friends, his name is Danny, decided to surprise Ramesh and show up unbeknownst to him. So we had a prearranged, Danny and I had prearranged that we would meet him in a falafel shop in downtown London. So Danny got there before Ramesh and I did. Danny got in, and not only did he get there, but he actually talked the manager of the falafel shop to let him behind the counter <laughs> and put on a falafel shop uniform. So Ramesh and I come in, you know, t- Ramesh is completely ignorant of this whole thing. He has no idea Danny is there. So we walk up to the counter. Danny is standing there behind the counter. Ramesh walks up to Danny. Now remember, these guys are best friends. They were roommates for three years, sleeping next to each other, right? He walks up to Danny, not a foot and a half away, looks him straight in the face and orders a falafel. <laughs> Total non-recognition. And then, you know, I'm standing there right next to him as we're working down the line, like he's saying, like, what he wants in a sandwich. <laughs> At some point, he turns to me and he goes, dude, Corey, this guy looks just like Danny. <laughs> it was amazing. And at that point, I just couldn't restrain myself. And so I just fell apart there. But um, so, so, you know, it was in some ways, it was a neurological experiment, right? Like how, you have to ask the question, like how could Danny be standing right in front of Ramesh, literally, and he not see him? Why? Because neurological pathways were telling him that it was not possible that Danny was in a falafel shop in London. His own thinking, his, his, what his beliefs were telling him is that Danny was a thousand miles away in Richmond, Virginia. And do you see how powerful it is that your beliefs shape your vision? What you think is true actually determines what you're seeing in the world. And so here's why I'm saying this. One of the reasons you might not see the risen and reigning Jesus in your everyday life is because you are choosing to believe that he just isn't there. Your beliefs are shaping your vision. Can I prove to you that Jesus is alive and that he is present and he is at work in your life and the world? No, I cannot. But neither can you prove to me that he isn't. Just like Sheldon Vonnegut said, it takes as much faith to reject the fact of a risen Jesus as it does to believe in him. And so what I would say, if you have decided from the start that Jesus could not possibly be risen from the dead and, and that we live in a sort of a, a materially closed universe and there's no spiritual reality to this world, then of course, if, those, if that's what you believe, then of course you're not going to see Jesus. You're not going to see him anywhere. You're going to see a dead, closed reality. Even if he's standing right in front of you, your beliefs have made you blind. And so what I'm inviting you to do is to do what billions of people have done, 
and that is to take the risk to cross the threshold of faith, to stop putting your faith in a material universe and start putting your faith instead in the possibility that Jesus could well be alive. And then what happened, I promise you this will happen, if you take that risk, you will begin to see what you could not previously see. You will begin to meet him. So unbelief, you could be blind to Jesus because you are choosing to be. Uh, another thing I think we see in this story is what I would call religious distraction. I think this is, this is just this great height of irony. I love Jesus. I love how playful he is. That they are talking about Jesus. They're conversing about Jesus. They're walking with Jesus, and yet they do not see Jesus. So their lives, they're literally, their entire activity here is around Jesus, and yet they are blind to him. This reminds me of religion. Because what often happens with religious people, and I know because I once was one. I was, I was I was baptized, confirmed in the Catholic Church, right? You know, what often happens is you are a very church-going person. I'm not saying this about Catholics. This is just as prone for Protestants as well. Understand me. Uh, you, you, you'd be raised in the church. You go to church. Your, your life is full of church and Jesus things. You hear Jesus talked about all the time. Maybe you even talk about Jesus yourself. You think you're a Christian in your head. And so you have all, your whole life, you're, you're thinking and acting and talking about Jesus, but you never actually encounter Jesus yourself. You never meet him. You never encounter him. This often happens in seminary. I remember being in seminary and people would sometimes say to me, oh, wow, it must be, you must be on such a spiritual high being in seminary, talking about God all the time. And actually, no. Spirit, seminary was actually a very spiritually dry time for me. And I know many, many people, friends of mine, who lost their faith in seminary because what happens is you're talking about God, you're studying God, you're writing papers about God, and you forget to actually know God. You're encountering God as an academic subject rather than a living, I mean, an object rather than a living subject who encounters you and meets you where you are. And so my challenge to some of you may be is that uh, you may know a lot about Jesus. Maybe you're even like in a, a Bible study about Jesus. Maybe you come to church every now and then and hear about Jesus, but you are missing Jesus because you've never actually met him yourself. You've never been converted. You've never been born again. You've never allowed him to change you and rock you and turn you upside down. You've never actually met the living Jesus. Or you might be a Christian who has long stopped having a living relationship with him. And you are a theoretical Christian, but a functional atheist. Because you do not meet him and know him in everyday life. So religious distraction can blind us from seeing the risen Jesus. Another thing in a similar vein is what I would call experiential projection. I want you to note here that this couple, uh, are, are, they're, they're relying on the experience of the women but they had not done, note that they had not done any of the work to investigate the claims themselves. Does that make sense? They're relying on other people's experiences of Jesus. Sometimes, listen carefully, church fam, listen. Sometimes it's easy to confuse having an experience of Jesus with experiencing other people's experiences of Jesus. Did you follow me? Sometimes it's easy to confuse experiencing Jesus with experiencing other people's experiences of Jesus. What I mean is that you could be in like a, a vibrant church, that has good music and good preaching, where lots of people have a, a vibrant relationship with God, but in the midst of that, you, ever, you, you actually avoid dealing with Jesus yourself. You never get alone with Jesus. You never meet him personally. But when push comes to shove, you can't rely on other people's experiences of Jesus. You've got to meet him and know him yourself. I had a, y'all might remember back in 2012, I almost died. I had a parentonsal abscess that was rapidly growing in my throat, nearly suffocated to death. Um, and that was a very powerful time for me in community because you all came around me, obviously my wife and family, my friends. But guess what, y'all? 
When I was in the ER and they rolled me into emergency surgery, guess who was there? Nobody. Just me and the medical team and Jesus. And at that moment, as good as my community was, as good as my church was, I could not rely on other people's experiences of Jesus. The only one I had that moment was my own. So have you had your own encounter with the living Jesus? Or are you experiencing other people's experiences of Jesus and deceiving yourself to believe that it is your own? Because there's going to come a time in your life, like mine, where you hit a crisis, and you've got to, at that point, if you don't know Jesus yourself, you will indeed be alone. So, so experiential projection, and then finally, uh, the last thing I think is that we see in this story that keeps us blind is hopelessness. Uh, the fact is their dreams have been shattered. The person they thought was the savior was crucified. Uh, they put all their hopes in this man. He'd been cut down like a weed. And they're devastated. They're confused. And I think what's clear it's happened is that their despair and their hopelessness have almost like put them in a fog so that they just can't see reality anymore. Their hearts are so burdened. They're blinded from seeing. And I do think that there are many of us who, who are in this place or who find ourselves in these places Maybe you, your marriage has become really painful and unfulfilling. Or maybe your kids haven't turned out the way that you wanted them to or dreamed they would. Uh, maybe you're in a deeply unfulfilling vocation. Or you're suffering under just a very serious and overwhelming financial debt. Or you're suffering with chronic pain or battling cancer or dealing with overwhelming sorrow or, or facing death yourself. And you're asking God, why did my life turn out this way? I want you to know there's nothing wrong with being discouraged. That's a normal human emotion. But here's what happens. When you live in a sustained place of discouragement, that discouragement eventually becomes hopelessness, and that hopelessness transforms into cynicism, and then that cynicism calcifies into blindness. I know because this has happened to me. As someone who has battled with chronic depression in my own life, I know what it means to be a person who is in a place of despair where even my closest friend, my wife, says to me, don't you know what's true? Don't you know that God loves you? Don't you know that Jesus is right beside you? And I can say, whatever. Because that's what hopelessness does. It calcifies into blindness. And so there may be some of you that are here today and you're not seeing Jesus because that's what's going on in your life right now. So I guess the question is, given all of these scenarios is, in what way might you be blind right now? Would you just take a moment to consider that? In what ways are you not seeing Jesus in your own life right now? So how can our eyes be open? How could we see? That's the beautiful uh, solution that we see in this section. So let's just talk for a moment about how we see Jesus. How can we see him? First of all, I think we can find him in the ordinary. You know, no one could have imagined that a musician like Joshua Bell would show up in a subway. Ramesh couldn't imagine that Danny would show up in a falafel shop. Um, these travelers couldn't imagine that the risen Jesus would show up on an ordinary road. And but that's what Jesus loves to do. He loves to show up in the ordinary places. If you translated this story into modern life, it would be two guys talking in a Starbucks about what happened in Jerusalem. And suddenly this guy from the next table starts overhearing and talking with them and they engage with him and then suddenly they realize, oh my goodness, this is Jesus right here in the Starbucks. That's where Jesus shows up. He shows up in the Starbucks. He shows up on the soccer field. He shows up in your kitchen. He shows up at work. He shows up in 
ordinary life. That's what he loves to do. And so some of the reasons you might be missing Jesus is because you're looking for him in the wrong places. You're looking for him in the extraordinary spiritual firework experiences rather than the ordinary places of life. I want to highly commend and recommend this wonderful book by Tish Harrison Warren called Liturgy of the Ordinary. And what Tish says in this book is that as humans, especially as 21st century Americans, we crave novelty and stimulation. But in reality, it is the crucible of our spiritual formation is in the monotony of our daily routines. It's in your messes, your struggles, right there as you're wiping kids' noses and dealing with your back pain and fighting with your spouse and battling traffic and worrying about tuition payments. That's where Jesus shows up, right there in the ordinary. So stop looking for something dramatic. Uh, Tomorrow, when you're trying to get dinner on the table and you are on your last nerve and you've just played the third episode of Captain Underpants on Netflix to keep your kids from killing each other, like that's the moment where Jesus wants to meet you as you cry out to him, help me, risen Jesus. I need you, shepherd, brother, priest, friend, advocate, helper. I need you here and now. Would you come alongside and be my help? And that's where we find him in the ordinary struggles of everyday life. So would you look for him? tomorrow, this afternoon, at work, at home. See him in the ordinary. Second, seek him in the scriptures. If I had a time machine, it would be fun. Um, Yeah, it would. But one of the places I would go is uh, this this road to Emmaus, because I would want to be there for verse 27 for this epic Jesus Bible study. I think this is amazing. Jesus, note that Jesus, it says, it says, it's not like he turned to like, oh, let's turn to uh, Isaiah 53 and study this passage about what it says about me. No, he says, what? All the law and the prophets. They must have been standing in that road for a real long time, brothers and sisters. You know, all the law and the prophets. And I love what it says in verse 27. He opened to them the scriptures, all the things the scriptures said. What? Concerning himself. I love that. You know, y'all, you can't say the whole Bible is about marriage or the whole Bible is about social justice or the whole Bible is about evangelism. But guess what? You can say the whole Bible is about Jesus. Every story whispers his name. The scripture is a guaranteed place where you can meet him and you can know him because Jesus continues to speak powerfully to his people and we have access to him every day through his word. This doesn't happen automatically. They needed help. They had read the Old Testament their whole lives, but no one had ever taught them to see Jesus in the scriptures. And so we need help. I need help. This is why we preach out of God's word expositionally every Sunday. This is why we have um, many Sunday schools for adults on Sunday morning. Some that are happening right now that are teaching about the Bible. This is why Ed does a guided tour of the Bible thing every fall and spring to teach us how to interpret and read the scriptures. Um, we're, we're, we want to be serious Bible people here because this is one of the guaranteed places where we know we can meet Jesus in the scriptures. And if you don't know how to read the Bible or if no one's ever taught you, would you come and talk to me afterwards? Because we have lots of places where we can help you learn how to read and understand the Bible so that you can meet him in the scriptures. It's a promised place where he will show up. Okay, so, so seek him in the scriptures. Meet him in community. Notice that all of this eye-opening happened in the context of hospitality and community. Verse 29, they invited Jesus in. They gathered around the table. And only in the midst of that table fellowship and hospitality, their eyes were opened. And the lesson here is that Jesus makes himself known to us, yes, individually in our own times with him in solitude and silence, 
but he also makes himself known in Christian community. In fact, he promised this. He said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, yep, there I am, right there in the midst. Jesus promises to show up in Christian community. Uh, One of my friends uh, wrote an email about this to me, and she said this, it has been through relationships that God has showed and opened my own personal blindness. My friendships have helped me unveil the cloud over my eyes and helped me to see what I could not have seen on my own. You know, I'm so excited that, you know, this afternoon um, in my house, there will be about 20 uh, men and women, boys and girls in our parish group gathered around the table, and we will be eating, and uh, it will be loud and difficult and complicated sometimes, (laughs) but Jesus is there in the midst revealing himself to us in Christian community. And that is beautiful. So would you seek that out? We make that available to you through our parish groups and through other things. And then finally, um, encounter him through the means of grace. Verse 31 says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Very important to note the passive tense there. Do you see? It does not say they opened their eyes. It says their eyes were opened, which speaks of the power of sin to blind human beings from seeing spiritual reality. We cannot open our own eyes. It takes God through the Holy Spirit to do that. Yet, we don't have to just wait around. We can actually position ourselves in certain places where God has promised to meet us and show up. The old uh, classic theologians of old called those places the means of grace. Y'all ever heard that term before? The means of grace. Basically, the means of grace just means the things or the, or the opportunities through which God gives us grace. God has provided many means for us where he promises if we show up, he will meet us and, and give us grace. So for example, metaphor, if you have a bucket, let's say you have an empty bucket, how are you gonna, how are you gonna fill up that bucket? You could sit on your couch, hold that bucket in your lap. You could hope that that bucket gets filled. You could pray that that bucket gets filled. You could complain that that bucket is empty. And you could sit there for a long time. <laughs> the other thing you could do is go to the, to the kitchen, turn on the faucet, and hold that bucket under where the water flows. And that's what means of grace are. They are the places that God has designed where his grace flows. And he has given us many of those places. He's given us the communion table. You see how Jesus broke the bread? And then their eyes were opened. Jesus promises that whenever we have communion as a church family, Jesus is there, present at the table. When we celebrate communion the first Sunday of the month, I mean, I'm shocked that, like, we don't have 2,600 people here on first Sundays of the month when we celebrate communion. Why? Because Jesus has promised, when you celebrate the Lord's Supper, there I am, present and powerful, active in the Holy Spirit. So make that a priority. Be here when we celebrate communion. That's an amazing thing, to meet Jesus at the table. Another way we can meet Jesus in the means of grace is scripture, through the preaching of God's word. This is why we preach God's word every week. Uh, Through prayer, prayer on your own, prayer from other people, Um, through community, through these ordinary things like speech, bread, wine, and water, common things do uncommon work. They become faucets where the water of God's grace flows. So here's what I'm saying. If you are longing to see the risen Jesus, instead of just waiting around and hoping that he will show up, Why not go to the places where he has promised that he will be? Come regularly to worship. Hear the word of God preached. Show up to the Lord's Supper. 
Make space in your life for prayer. Spend time in the scriptures. Spend time in solitude and silence. Make time for Christian community. That's a whole lot better than sitting on the couch with your empty bucket life wishing that it gets filled. Go to where the grace flows. He's given you means of grace. So, friends, let's close this way. I want to announce to you in this second Sunday of Eastertide that Jesus is risen from the dead. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, right? And he is reigning. He's at the right hand of the Father. He's actively at work in the world through the power of the Spirit. He is making all things new. He's transforming men and women, boys and girls. And the key to spiritual life, the key to growing up as a Christian is to see him and to live your life around his reality, knowing the depth and love and depth and height and length and width of the love of God in Christ for you. So here's what is true. Jesus is reigning. Jesus holds you fast. Jesus loves you. Jesus is redeeming your pain. Even in the worst and most terrible suffering of your life, Jesus is at work holding you, giving you hope. He is renewing your life. He's renewing all things. What is most true about you is that you are loved, you are forgiven, you have hope and a future, and you are never alone. It is what's true about you because Jesus has risen from the dead. So will you see him and see what is true? And will you pray that God gives you eyes, spiritual eyes that are open to see the risen Jesus who is right in front of us? Let's pray that that happens. Let's pray. I'm just going to use this prayer from Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe that he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead and who is now seated at the right hand in the heavenly realms. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.